It's good to be with you all again. Yeah. All right. Um, one of the things I've appreciated about some of the things we've already named here is that we serve a God of what I think are, are I'd call them um, complementary contrasts. Because we talked about this great big God who's majestic and holy and all these things, but somehow is this gentle shepherd um, and a God who's even willing to send his son to die and to suffer for us. Um, God somehow is able to hold all these things together and who he is and how he engages with his people. And so today I want to focus on this question of who is the God that we worship? Because God often breaks the, the boxes we try to put God in, um, but he does that in ways that are for our good. Even when God doesn't show up the way we expect or do the things that we want, God is always acting out of love for us. And so um, I've noticed that you all were in Psalm 27 last week, and uh, we reread it again today, and um, we're going to be staying in Psalms for today, and so the reading will be coming from Psalm 29, verses 1 through 11. And if you're able, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the yokes and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. So this psalm begins by commanding the heavenly beings in verse 1, who are likely angels, to recognize God's glory, strength, and holiness. Then the passage affirms that God is supreme over creation and, and unique. And it's also important to note that psalms were often read in religious services, just like today. So while this psalm describes heavenly worship, it also invites its readers and its hearers into the worship of this God, urging us to acknowledge just who this God is. In the context of when the psalm was written, the Israelites often found themselves tempted to worship foreign idols instead of recognizing the supremacy of this God. Now that all might seem a little bit disconnected from our own experiences, we don't usually bow down to golden idols typically, unless y'all got some surprises for me. But the challenge for us, I think, even today in 2023 remains the same. In our lives, we are faced with things and people that compete for our devotion and our time and our worship. Things that can have an unhealthy grip on our lives. Sometimes we can feel this tension between saying we worship God, but feeling so many other things drawing our attention, calling for our devotion and our commitment and our energy. I can remember attending a ministry conference years ago, back when I was an undergraduate, where I felt like I was forced to wrestle with this question. I was in my second year um, of college, and I had become deeply immersed in ministry work. Um, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Um, but in particular, I was interested in studying religion, right? taking classes, learning about theology, 
all these kind of big concepts. So I found myself attending this conference with, with a bunch of other students. And I remember um, there was a guest preacher for that particular night. And uh, in her sermon that evening, she focused on the story in the Gospels of Jesus healing a blind man named Bartimaeus. Many of you are familiar with that story. But in that scene in Mark chapter 10, Bartimaeus is sitting on the side of the road, and he hears that Jesus is passing by. After crying out for Jesus uh, for his help, Jesus turns and he heals him. And the refrain in that sermon was a call to not miss the moment when Jesus is passing by, the moment when God appears, to not miss the moment when God is revealing himself. And as that sermon was coming to a close, we entered into a time of prayer. And to paint the picture, imagine 3,000 people in a room, probably 80% of them all on the floor, just praying and worship to God. I'm not the type of guy who like frequently hears audible words from God or anything like that. I've met some folks who seem to have God on speed dial. That's awesome. <laughs> Praise God for them. I've never been quite that guy. But in that moment, it was one of the first times that I felt like God was really speaking to me. And the question God asked me was this, who are you living for? Who are you living for? At the time, I'd become very passionate about learning about theology, but but my passion for God had actually waned a lot. A mentor of mine had even warned me to, in his words, not let the heart of God get lost in the growth of the mind. That's exactly what I had done. I had begun worshiping my craft instead of my creator. And I was involved in ministry, but I was really living for myself. And even though my lips spoke of God's glory, my heart secretly craved my own. One thing I learned during that time was that worship is essentially about value. We can know what we worship and value most by following the trail of our time, our affections, our energy, especially our money. And God began to convict me of how I'd been pouring myself into learning about the things of God and even doing the things of God without deepening my relationship with God. God convicted me of what I was valuing in that moment, in that season. And it was really hard for me to free to be free to worship God when my focus was always on these other things. What we focus on communicates what we actually value in our lives. In American culture, some of the things that we value most are well-paying jobs, right? We all want that. Respect or approval of others. Certain types of relationships or networks. We often love power, pleasure. It can be easy for us to verbally acknowledge that we should worship God above all these things, of course. But in practice, we end up still placing them before God. Sometimes we don't even realize it. What you'll notice is that none of those things are inherently bad. Success is not an inherently bad thing, nor relationships. But sometimes our idolatry does not lie in what we want, but how bad we want it. I think it was um, C.J. Mahaney used to say that the essence of idolatry is, idolatry is not wanting a bad thing, but wanting a good thing too much. When good things become obsessions and we begin to live for them, we have ceased to fully live for God. And we've lost sight of God and who God is in our worship. Oftentimes we can tell whether this is true by asking ourselves this. What is our response if we don't get what we want? When we don't get the promotion of the job, when we don't have that significant other right now, when we don't get into the program we've applied for, is God enough then? Is who God is enough for us to worship him alone? Or are we really just passionate about the things we can get from God? 
This is a question I think that we all have to wrestle with. Too easily we can fall, we can fall into this trap of seeking God's hand without seeking God's face. And instead of seeking God's presence, we just settle for his presence, the things he can give to us. But what if a loving relationship with God is also an end within itself? When God appears, that is the opportunity before us. This is why the first couple of verses of the psalm call us to ascribe glory and honor to God. And they begin to introduce us to just who this God is. Now, in verses 3 through 9, we're given a full glimpse of why this God is worthy of our worship. And takes what may, at first glance, feel like a bit of a left turn. I don't know if you noticed that. It says, the voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God boy thunders. He thunders over waters. The voice is powerful, majestic, breaks trees, right? Strikes with flashes of lightning, shakes the desert, twists oaks, strips forest bare, and then the people in temple, in temple say glory, right? That image is striking, and I think it's a bit scary. A little scary. It sounds more like natural disasters than the glory of God. And when I read this, I couldn't help but think about um, when I first started, uh, I moved to Richmond about a year ago, but I started commuting nine months prior. And right around the time I was commuting, I was on 64 uh, East every day, and um, it was right around that big snowstorm that happened a couple years ago that, like, knocked out all those trees all over the state. I don't know if y'all remember that. But I remember it because every day I would drive down and I would see just trees just, just falling all the way down 64. And that's what I thought about when I read these verses. I imagine God being the one who does that. What do you make of that type of God? It says that the voice of the Lord thunders, breaks trees, flashes lightning, shakes the desert, strips forests, and then the angels cry glory. Who is that God? And why do the angels respond to this terror by worshiping him. Here the psalmist continues to paint a picture. In the first two verses, we are introduced to a God who is holy, who is glorious. And in these following verses, we see a God who is powerful and sovereign. This is significant for our worship because becoming free to worship God requires having a true understanding of who this God is. When our worship is inadequate, it is often because our conception of God is inadequate. Or as another pastor says, uh, when our worship is small, it's because our concept of God is small. At first glance, the God of the psalm can seem a bit foreign to us. He doesn't neatly connect with the popular paintings of Jesus with a lamb draped over his shoulders. That's not the first image that comes to mind when you read the psalm. The description of God in this psalm is a bit more jarring. Perhaps the reason why the God of verses 3 through 9 may seem foreign to us is because we often fashion a downsized and domesticated God, a God who's very easy for our fingers to handle, a God who does not convict but does love, a God who is really just a bigger, stronger, faster us. But how we respond when God thunders and God blows up the box that we placed him in, what if what God really wants to do is to free us from our false ideas about who God is so that we can become free to worship true God. We probably all experienced situations in our lives where there were people that we knew as, as nice and gentle and cheerful, but then all of a sudden, we realized there was another side to them. And then, after seeing them for who they really were, it allowed us to more fully understand them and even appreciate the full truth about who they were. I remember back when I was in high school, I had just gotten my license, and um, my mother and I were always very close. She's a very calm, very peaceful woman for the most part. And she was excited for me and supportive as I was taking the step towards becoming a responsible adult. 
And I remember that once I got my license, we spoke about the importance of me letting her know where I was when I was out and abiding by the rules in terms of how long I could stay out and all those things. But I knew my mom was a super nice lady, right? So of course she wouldn't be super strict or concerned about this. You know, that was my thought. After all, she could trust me, right? <laughs> so anyways, I'd only had my license for about a week or two and my mom gave me permission to run some errands. So while I was out, I realized that a buddy of mine had gotten keys to the school gym because he knew one of the staff and he proposed that we go shoot some hoops. So my first thought was, one, I love playing basketball, and two, as an aspiring and future NBA prospect, how else <laughs> am I supposed to take my game to the next level? How else? So for me, it's a no-brainer. So I showed up to the gym, played ball for several hours, and I didn't give any thought to asking my mom about this decision or even letting her know where I was. Who knows, after I was drafted by the NBA, I could surprise her with the story as I'm buying her a new house or whatever, right? <laughs> now, unbeknownst to me, my mom uh, eventually was calling around to other people in town trying to figure out where I was because she was worried. And once I'd spent hours upon hours shooting hoops and preparing for the NBA draft, I decided that I was ready to go home. So I remember stepping into the house to see a woman who looked very different from the person I had left earlier that day. <laughs> And she was a little bit upset, to say the least. Um, now, my mom was never the type of person to lash out in anger or, or yell, but she had this stern look on her face that communicated all that I needed to know. The first thing she did was not to say anything, but to just hold out her hand. That's all she said, all she did. And I instinctively knew that meant, oh, she wants these keys. <laughs> so then she asked me where I'd been, let me know she was, she was upset that I hadn't been in touch with her, and then she issued my punishment. Any guess how she chose to punish me? No car, ground, you said grounding, grounding? Great guesses. Say it again. What is that? Maybe walk? Oh. <laughs> I'll save those stories for another, another sermon. Um, but uh, so yeah, so this is all very close to the truth. So she took my keys for a month and um, that was the first thing. But the second thing she did was she told me to go find a Bible and define the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, if you're wondering. And um, then she said that during this month of not driving, I would need to find some loose-leaf paper and handwrite the entire chapter 50 times. And at the end of the month, I would have to recite the entire chapter back to her in order to get my keys, a chapter that does not just include the Ten Commandments. It's a lot more than that in that chapter. <laughs> now, I mentioned that story for two reasons. Um, one is to illustrate that my mom was very creative with discipline. <laughs> there are other stories that I could share about that creativity, but, you know, y'all get me back another time. Maybe you'll hear them. How old were you? At that point, 16. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But there are other stories about laying over holy hands, all kinds of things. But the second reason I share it is because it reminded me that there was this other side to my mom. Sure, she was a joyful and peaceful woman who loved her children sacrificially. She'd do anything for us. But she also had this other side to her. She loved and respected others, but she demanded respect. And in hindsight, I can now appreciate the stronger side of her, especially now that I'm, as a, I'm a parent of two girls. And although the side of her caught me off guard in the moment, it gave me a fuller glimpse of who she was. It helped me to fully know the truth about my mom. Sometimes we can forget that love and justice, grace and truth, forgiveness and accountability are often part of the Two sides of the same coin. 
They go together. And then we can make the mistake of carrying our assumptions about them being separate into our relationships with God. To give an example, when it comes to God, we typically have no problem with God's voice speaking. But we don't want to believe that his voice can thunder, or at least not at us, right? We like the still, small voice, voice idea that, um, that Elijah experiences in 1 Kings. The voice that breaks trees and shakes the earth, like in today's psalm, that, that feels a little bit less pleasant to us. Perhaps we know that when God thunders, it may not always feel just like words of comfort, but maybe words of conviction or correction. Perhaps deep, deep down, we know that becoming true worshipers requires us to acknowledge the thunder of God and our need to repent for the habits that are hindering our worship. That could be individually or as a church body. We see situations throughout scripture where when people capture a full glimpse of who God is and his power and their glory, one thing they often recognize is their own sinfulness, the things they really need to give over to God. We see this in um, Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah has this encounter with God, and the first thing he says is, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips, right? We see this in uh, the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus performs a miracle, and, and Peter's first words in the boat are, depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. With Peter and Isaiah, God's glorious thunder shapes how they conceived, or reshapes how they're conceived of God. But though God's thunder convicts, it never actually condemns, if you notice. Just like I experienced with my mother, the conviction that God's thunder provides is for our good. God thunders with his awesome majesty and his holy power, not to scare us away, but to reveal who he really is so that we might enter into real, authentic relationship with this God. We cannot fully worship this God without seeing him as he really is. It's also noteworthy in this passage that God isn't thundering at anyone in this psalm. The psalm follows this long description of God's power and his strength, not with the destruction of people who oppose him, but with the invitation to share in God's strength. It closes by stating in verse 10 and 11, it says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord is enthroned as king forever. The Lord gives strength to his people. The Lord blesses his people with peace. The irony of the psalm is that this whole section of God's terrifying and thunderous voice sets up God's offer of peace. Here the psalm continues to paint this picture of who this God is, reminding us that God is not primarily a king lording his power over us, but a creator who is madly in love with us. The climax of this text is that God desires to strengthen his people and give them peace, shalom, wholeness. So how do we respond when God thunders? and blows our mind with his holiness, his power, and his grace. Will we ascribe glory and honor to this God, even if he reveals himself in ways that surprise us, ways that even unsettle us? Will we choose to follow this God and obey him when what he requires of us is not what we expected or even what we wanted? Will we choose to worship this God? One thing I love about this passage is that there are these allusions to the creation story from Genesis, with God's voice being over the waters in verse 3, and God sitting over the, over the flood in verse 10. Somehow this passage affirms God's sovereignty over creation by marrying his creative power with his destructive power. What does that mean? Somehow those two things are being held together in this psalm. And I think that understanding this is part of the work that God is doing and it can be helpful in our own spiritual formation. 
It suggests that as we dream of the type of people that God wants us to become and the type of church community and kingdom that God is building, this is going to require some destruction, some tearing down of strongholds, some deconstruction of how we might have understood who God is and who we are even called to be. And this has to go hand in hand with embracing the truth of who God is and the kingdom that God is building among us, around us, and in us, joining in that work. All this begins with understanding who God really is and allowing the tearing down and the building up to begin with us. Then we can be credible witnesses, living affirmations of who this God is because we first allowed him to transform us. This is why our worship and our witness are so connected to one another. When we lead lifestyles of worship, it makes our witness credible and invites others to taste and see this good God. If we're not pursuing holy lifestyles, do we reveal in our lives that we worship a God who's holy? If we're not people of faith, do our lives suggest that we worship a God who is faithful? If we're not merciful to those around us, do we testify to a God of compassion? If we're not committed to the work of justice, even when it inconveniences us, how important do we really think that justice is to the God that we serve? If we do not speak the truth when it's uncomfortable, do we suggest that we worship a conflict-avoidant God, a God more invested in peacekeeping than peacemaking? The world around us hears us in moments of action, in our moments of speaking, and in our moments of silence, and it takes notes. The question we have to wrestle with is this. If Psalm 29 paints a picture of who God really is, do our lives paint a similar picture? Since the psalm was written to a community and worship is a communal endeavor, we have to ask ourselves, as a church, do we have an accurate vision of who this God is? And do people see the evidence of this God when they are with us, when they see us? Now, we can't know God comprehensively. If you master who God is, that'd be really impressive. But we can go not know God um, truly because we see Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of God. Right? In Jesus, we see a God who exercises his power over creation, calming storms and walking on water. But we also see a God who uses his power to draw people into the warmth of his forgiveness. In Jesus, we see a God who thunders and cracks the whip as he turns over tables in the temple, but a God who's willing to stop and to weep over the world's brokenness. In Jesus, we see a God who thunders at Pharisees, calling them whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of death. Yet this is the same Jesus who tells the adulterous woman that her sins have been washed away. When we read Psalm 29, that is the God that we see. This is a God that can't be controlled. This God can't be domesticated. This God is powerful and thunders. Yet God's gracious power is not about intimidation. It's about intimacy. And as God gives us a glimpse of who he is, we see that his power is not a weapon over against us, but is for us. Even when God's power and holiness convict, this conviction is an invitation to share in God's holiness so that we might witness to who he is in our world. We can keep ourselves from losing sight of who God is by investing in our relationship with him. In scriptures like Psalm 29, we are brought face to face with the awesome majesty of God. And in prayer, we confess our false ideas about God and open up ourselves to God encountering us anew. Just like we understand people better when we build relationships with them, my hope is that as each of us here seeks God, we will be able to worship the real God 
in the spirit and truth of who he really is. So maybe you're here and you sense ways that God may be calling you to understand him more fully. Perhaps there are things that are even competing for your time or devotion that cause you to lose sight of God's supremacy or who God really is. Or maybe even worries or concerns about your family or relationships or your job have led you to doubt that God is all-powerful. Maybe certain things in your life have replaced God at the center of your time or your attention, your resources, your energy. My prayer is that God would again be God in your life, in my life, in our lives. That God would show up and also that we will be open to how God decides to show up. Or maybe you're here and you found it easy to see God's power in your life. And you found it easy to hear God's thunder, but you find it really hard to feel God's grace. For some of us, this God of thunder and power feels like the only God we've known. This is an incomplete picture of God, too. That's why it's so significant that the thundering in this passage is not directed at any person. God is a God of power, but also a God of grace and mercy and love and compassion. And he is inviting us to see and experience all these things in him, a good father. So my prayer is that our eyes will be opened, that our ears will be attuned, and that our hearts will be softened so that we might see and receive whatever God wants to reveal to us about who he is. So as we bring all this before the Lord, I invite you to stand and to pray with me if you're able. Gracious God, thank you and all that that means. Thank you that you are a God who is holy, who is just, who is supreme, but also God who is near, who has come in Jesus to love us, to invite us into relationship with you, to heal the brokenness of our world, and to mobilize us as ambassadors of your kingdom and of a new way to live. So God, we pray for those in, in this room who, or online, who um, either have been really, really aware of your thunder, but not super aware of your love, or the reverse. God, I pray you would meet us, helping us to recognize who you really are. And I pray that in that, God, we would feel your warm embrace. And God, um, we respond to your love through loving obedience, through faithfulness, and through discipleship. God, show us what that looks like. Show us what it means to lay aside our conceptions of who you are, the boxes we try to put you in, just to say, God, be God in our lives, and give us the strength and the courage to say yes to whatever that means for us. So God, we confess the ways that we've erected idols in our lives, the ways that we have um, substituted you for downsized versions of you, or replaced you with other things that claw for our attention. But God, we also affirm that you are God who is powerful enough through your spirit to reorient us, to change us, to draw our gaze back to the cross, to draw our gaze back to the empty tomb, knowing that we serve a God who is risen, who has all power in his hand, and who is Emmanuel, God with us. So God, we thank you for this. And we pray that we will be a people who proclaim this truth, but also live this truth in the everyday. In the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen.